This episode of African Tech Conversations is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use invoicing software designed to help you get organized, save time invoicing, and get paid faster. If that sounds good to you, click through to gofreshbooks.com forward slash tech conversations to activate a 30-day free trial. Ben White is the founder of what is widely considered Africa's leading platform for startup funding, Venture Capital for Africa. He leads a team that brings together thousands of business professionals from 159 countries who are dedicated to building game-changing startups on the African continent. VC for Africa has recently published some research called the 2016 Venture Finance in Africa Report, which cites growing investor appetite in African early-stage startups. In this conversation, Ben unpacks some of his organization's findings and factors in on what players within the VC and angel investment scene on the continent ought to be doing to improve the state of play overall. This is African Tech Conversations. Can you think back to a time when you were a kid uh, and you got hopelessly lost? And I got hopelessly lost. Uh, Growing up in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, we would spend the weekend skiing up, uh, up in the mountains. And uh, I definitely remember, you know, being uh, sort of the, the first days that you were able to kind of, you know, your father would go right and you'd go left. And uh, you'd say, you know, I'll meet you at the bottom. And then, you know, somewhere halfway down the mountain, you, you come to, you know, different sort of paths that you can take. And some of them look kind of familiar, but you're not totally sure. There's a tree that you, you might have skied past, you know, uh, before. Um, yeah, that's a, a totally exciting moment when you're on the mountain and, and, you know, it's the last run of the day, you know, the, the mountain's clearing out and then, you know, at a certain point it's empty. Yeah. yeah. It's, and so, um, is, is, is that a specific memory or did this happen more than once? It's, it, I mean, if you're skiing, it happens, you know, it can happen quite often, but, um, yeah, no, I definitely have, uh, you know, very specific memories of, you know, having gone a different direction and then, you know, having a gut feeling that you're moving in the right direction, but not, you know, a hundred percent sure. And then, you know, you kind of, you, you take a couple of turns and then you come back into a place where, where it is really familiar and you've been many times before. And it's like, okay, uh, finally, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to survive this, uh, this experience. And so, uh, by the by, uh, explain to someone who hasn't been skiing, what the appeal is. It seems like a, a sport that's really difficult to get into from a, from a learning curve point of view. And then you're out in the cold for extreme, for long periods of time. Uh, and then it's super dangerous. I mean, even, you know, even the best of them, Michael, like Michael Schumacher get, you know, yeah, right. get hurt doing it. So yeah, right, what's right. the appeal? How did you get into it? Uh, who taught you to ski and what's the appeal? I mean, I think if you grow up in, in the mountains, it's a very natural sort of thing to, to do. Um, and, and if you start at an early age, you know, you, you kind of learn these things maybe a lot easier than, you know, if you try and pick them up when, when you're, you know, maybe in your 30s or, or your 50s. Uh, you know, so my I ski with my my two year old and my four year old, and it's just you know amazing how quickly they you know they can get down the mountain. And maybe it's also because they have such a low, you know, center of gravity that when they right. fall, you know, their distance to to the ground is just it's so short. It's it you know they don't really get get hurt. But uh, you know the skiing thing, it's it's a very it, it you know it's a very individual sport. Yeah. Um, you know, you're really you, you're choosing your own path 
down the mountain and and you know the snow if, if you have really great snow really soft snow uh you know it's just a playground it's just you know bouncing around between trees and rocks and you know really just trying to find your own way down the mountain uh it's i think there are very few things that are actually as enjoyable as uh as skiing it, would you say that's a metaphor for how you live life uh the whole the fact that it's individual it's an individual sport finding your own way um i suppose there's a danger element as well that maybe keeps you uh, interested maybe it's the opposite right maybe it's because you know i'm a I have a family uh you know bc for a is an organization and and a network and we're constantly you know all day long engaging each other as professionals and colleagues and friends and family members uh we're constantly relying on each other depending on each other uh and maybe you know skiing is actually that that sort of outlet to to go back to yourself to go back to you know kind of a quiet place and and really be on your own again, uh, really be independent. And I, and I think also when you know skiing is is really great because you also have all this time to think. So your mind really goes in all different kinds of places, and you know you have a really kind of a, a unique chance to to also reflect on you know everything that's going on in your life, which is which is also really pretty important. Okay, so going back to the the theme I I, I started with. Um... When is when is the last time you felt lost? Speeding forward to today, um, in your role at VC for Africa, I think you know sometimes you you feel lost when you have the expectation that you're supposed to be somewhere, which also relates to you know VC for Africa, uh, in the sense that you know when the whole initiative started, there wasn't really a plan. There wasn't necessarily an objective that was saying, you know, we want to go somewhere, we want to achieve something, you know, very specific. It was more of, you know, there was a group of people who were coming together around an idea and just starting to collaborate and work together. And, and things have just sort of evolved organically over time. And I think, you know, even now there's, there's this, you know, pressure to say, well, don't you have a destination? Isn't there a plan? Aren't you going somewhere really specific? And if you're not, you know, making progress on that path, are you starting to feel lost? Um, but you know, if you don't have those expectations, then it really doesn't doesn't matter. So I don't I don't feel so so lost. And so, isn't that counterintuitive to you know the the rhetoric within you know the startup space or within business? This uh, this idea that focus is king, that um, if if you don't know where you're going, you'll never get there, and all those kind of things. Well, I mean, I think. You can still have focus and you can still have, you know, objectives, but in terms of, you know, how you're going to get there, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be predefined. And there's there's so many different paths to to reaching your objectives. And if you're sort of, you know, flexible to that, um, you know, then I, then I think you're you're actually much better off as well. Right. So uh, I believe you're half American, half Dutch. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, uh, American father and a, and a Dutch mother. And uh, you, you sound American, so which part of you is Dutch? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so I grew up, I was born in, in New Mexico, you know, born and raised, um, and, and really uh, came to the, so my, my, you know, grew up in New Mexico with my, both my parents. Um, and then when I was 11, I moved to the Netherlands for a year. Uh, afterwards, I went back to the U.S. and then, you know, finished school, finished 
university. And then after university, uh, I came back to the Netherlands. So um, now I think I've spent about half of my life in, in sort of the US and, and half of my life uh, living in the Netherlands. So I, I would say I'm somewhere, you know, pretty close to the middle. Right. And how, what do you, how do you define being home? Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, if you're, you know, away from a place long enough, even if you try to go back, you don't necessarily, you know, it doesn't make sense, full sense. Um, so I don't know if I necessarily feel at home here in the Netherlands or in the U.S. I think, you know, the idea of home for me is is really just much more centered around, you know, where my family is um, and, and sort of the home that we create as a family is, you know, that for me, that's really my, my sense of home. And, you know, where that home is, is, is doesn't really actually matter all that much. Yeah, you mentioned children, right? So you, you, are you married? You've got, you've got children. How old are they? Yeah, I've got two, two boys, so a two-year-old and a, and a four-year-old. And uh, yeah, if I can get them out on the ski slopes, uh, we're on it. And do they live in the Netherlands with you? Yeah, yeah. We live uh, just here uh, outside of Amsterdam. Right. So, uh, I mean, the two places you're from technically, right? So um, Holland and, uh, and New Mexico couldn't be more different, could they? They are pretty radically different. Yeah, absolutely. Dial back to being 11 years old and growing up in what's essentially what an, a desert, a desert state, to and then discovering this pretty bright city or bright place that is Holland. You're right; they're completely different. I mean, New Mexico has a very small population, uh, massive, you know, amount of of space, um, you know, huge nature. Uh, you can go anywhere, you know, camping, fishing, hiking, skiing. Um, so just beautiful, beautiful outdoors and, and very sort of rich history, um, you know, with just sort of the, the you know, the, the music and the food. And it's a very interesting place. And it, and it couldn't be more different from the Netherlands, which, you know, is, you know, 17 million people living in, in what is, you know, some of the smallest square footage on the planet, most mm. densely populated urban environment. So in New Mexico, you don't really have, you know, cities. Um, you know, on the scale that you do here in, in, in Europe, but then also just sort of the, you know, the density and just how old everything is, you know, here in, in Europe, but then also just sort of how, how things are also organized and, and the level of, of infrastructure, um, you know, just very, very, two very different things. And, you know, so just from the geography, but also from the, you know, the culture and the people, they're, they're also very different. Um, one of the things that I found living here, uh, you know, in the Amsterdam area uh, is that you're just much better connected to the rest of the world. You know, we have Schiphol Airport, you know, 20 minutes uh, away where, you know, in a single flight, you can basically get to any corner uh, of the planet. Um, you know, and trying to do that from, from New Mexico is just a, a very different uh, experience. I think there was a, actually a lady who moved to Amsterdam from Malawi, and then there was uh, an announcement in the newspaper that Amsterdam, uh, you know, with only like 800,000 inhabitants, had uh, more nationalities living in Amsterdam than in New York City. Wow. <laughs> wow. So it's just a very diverse, you know, very multicultural uh, space, and, and it's great. So you, you came up in an entrepreneurial household, I believe. Uh, I, th I think. Uh, your, your parents uh, ran a, a, a hotel or a motel or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, right. Yeah, my father, 
you know, was driving down Route 66. My, my grandfather had a hotel, so my family comes out of the hotel business. And at some point, my, my father was also looking for a place and, and found one in, in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And, you know, he's been building that business for, uh, for 43 years. It, yeah, people like you interest me, you know, um, uh, entrepreneurs that come from an entrepreneurial background, you know. Um, I'm curious about whether you grew up with any pressure to, to take over the family business or, you know, pursue a, a career in, in, in business at all. Yeah, I mean, if you grow up in, in you know, a family business, you're, you're very much involved in it. Um, it's also sort of the one thing that is, you know, constantly on the, the table for, for discussion. So you really are just constantly thinking as a family about, you know, about the family business. And, and so, you know, that I think does a lot in terms of just your psychology and, and how you think about the world. And so I think it's very natural that, you know, myself and also members of my family go on to to start uh, businesses and certainly, you know, going and, and studying, you know, business at school. Uh, you know, those were all sort of very natural, very natural steps for us to take. And, and it would be difficult to to think of doing something other maybe then then you know sort of choosing a more you know like business entrepreneurial route in in life is that to say that if you decided to like dance ballet or <laughs> you know try and you know try your luck in hollywood you, your family might have frowned upon that no we ne I never we never had that kind of pressure um my sister for example is a midwife and we couldn't be more you know sort of proud of you know what she's done she's just graduated she just passed her, her exams and, and is now you know basically allowed to practice in, in the state of New Mexico um, but you know there is again also this discussion that at some point she might start her own clinic so you know even if you go and, and you know do your own thing somehow that entrepreneurial mindedness or thinking you know creeps into whatever you're doing right uh, right and so how many siblings were you growing up uh, so we're with the four of us, yeah. And where do so you I have feature? One sister and and three brothers, and I'm the eldest. Oh, you're the you're the firstborn. Yeah. <laughs> ah, ah. Does that come with pressure? Um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you certainly were have been around the longest, so you you've seen the the, <laughs> the family, you know. From you know, I I remember things that, for example, my sister, who's the youngest, uh, you know, has only heard about. Um, so there's a, a context there, and I think any sibling tries to be a, an example for for the others. But uh, if you you know whether or not you succeed, that's another question. And how far apart are you in terms of siblings? Um, in terms of age, in or terms of age, yeah, you, we're about two years apart, each of us. Have you noticed any generational gaps between you guys? Um, I'm fascinated. Look, I'm I'm a millennial by the skin of my teeth. I think depending which which measure you use. I'm either like one year in or one year out. You know? so, yeah. Yeah. But um, the, the, it's fascinating to see how um, in so many ways I don't fit the, the, the stereotypical mold of being a millennial in many ways I do. And then just, and then looking back a few years, people who perhaps like three or four years younger than me could very well have been born in a, technically in a different generation altogether because of the way they think and the way they, they assert themselves. Do you notice those kind of differences in your siblings? Hmm. I think that the, the, you know, sort of the difference in time between us isn't, isn't so great. I don't have a feeling that my, 
you know, my youngest sibling is is living a, a very different life than than I am. I would have to ask him or her. <laughs> yeah, they probably Maybe think they, you're they like would a... say something different. Yeah, like yeah, but, you come know, on, I, uncle. I do think we're we are all sort of experiencing, you know, the emergence of sort of new ways of thinking or or doing things. Um, you know, I think there's this real sort of appetite within, you know, within us, but also within the people that we know, um, you know, to really try and 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 do things that have that have meaning. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the generation now is also a generation that has a lot of questions um, and is not necessarily, you know, satisfied with the way things are at the moment and, and is, you know, to some extent, you know, interested in, in trying to figure out, you know, can we do things a little bit differently and what does that look like and, and how do we go about doing that? So how did uh, Africa feature so heavily in, in the career you, you, you would eventually build, you know, so talk me through, you know, finishing high school, what you studied at varsity and then discovering this, what seems to be a a passion for, for Africa. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not one of those things that, that you, you plan for. It's just something that, that, you know, rather, you know, it, it it happens. Um, I went to uh, Boston university uh, to study, uh, did international, you know, business and, and economics, and you, you graduate with a degree, and then you say, okay, well, you know, there's no point in sticking around because I wanted to do something international. So, you know, I, I got to go out and, and, you know, see the world. Um, and so I was looking for opportunities, and, and I ended up working with uh, Forrester Research, which is an IT consultancy that had a, a European headquarters based, uh, based here in Amsterdam. Uh, worked for them and and then uh, at some moment there was an opportunity to work uh, with a uh, with a production uh, company uh, based out of South Africa I went and 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 did that and, and had an opportunity to work and travel in in you know different countries across you know Africa the Middle East and Eastern Europe um, around that time you could see that mobile and and internet were starting to to really become exciting that was when we had you know mo ibrahim and and the celltel story um you know where celltel eventually went on to be acquired uh you know in the the top 100 uh, executives at at the uh at the organization you know became millionaires and what a lot of people don't know is that the celltel headquarters was actually based also um out of amsterdam uh, and a lot of the people that were involved were were actually, you know, um, people living in, in the Amsterdam area. And there was a lot of Dutch money involved in, in, in the Celtel, uh, you know, in the Celtel story. So there was a, a network here um, of people who were, you know, sort of very active uh, in the African venture space at a very sort of early stage. Uh, and, and it was something I also wanted to be a part of. Uh, and, and so I found a, a small group of um, you know, individuals working on something called Africa Interactive. Uh, we launched a news platform called AfricanNews.com. Uh, we built out a, a network of reporters, photographers, and filmmakers, about 4,000 individuals across the African continent. And, you know, the thesis there was to say, you know, why do we have to fly in media talent to tell African stories when there are so much talent across the continent that is in a better position to tell these stories from a local perspective? And so what's the model for that? What was the model for that? Was that, were you packaging content to sell on to, to, other, to news networks or, or other platforms? Or was it, um, 
So we had also we had AfricanNews.com, which was our own channel, which is now part of Euronews. Um, but then also, uh, you know, basically creating content uh, under contract. So, you know, doing stories for media, um, but also uh, doing, um, you know, mini documentaries or video work for, for clients. Uh, we set up, you know, production offices in, in Ghana and, uh, and in Kenya uh, and then had an office in, in Amsterdam. And, and the company is still going. Uh, but at a certain point, you know, for me, I was the, the commercial director there. Uh, you know, I was also, you know, sort of thinking that this was really exciting. This was probably the beginning of, of a lot more to come. Um, also sort of, you know, recognizing that there are so many, you know, individual talents, sort of founders emerging uh, in, in all of these different urban uh, you know, centers across the African continent, I was also really curious to take a step back and, and just really try and understand, you know, what are, what are their ideas? What do they want to build? Um, how do they see the future? Uh, what, are, what do they see as the opportunities or the challenges? And, and, and you know, is there, uh, you know, basically an opportunity to, to really start creating uh, and building sort of, you know, African-born solutions uh, and, and so I, I actually uh, quit my job and I went to the University of Amsterdam and with a group of researchers, we uh, established a, a partnership with the Makerere University in Kampala, Uganda. Uh, and I think I did what might be the first, if not the only, uh, ethnographic research study on the emergence of software cultures uh, in and around Kampala, Uganda. So basically spending, you know, hundreds, thousands of hours just, you know, hanging out with, uh, with developers and, and with, you know, entrepreneurs uh, in and around Kampala and just really trying to understand, you know, how they're looking at the world and, and what they wanted to build. And what were you hoping to find? Or I suppose good research doesn't preempt findings as such, but what were you hoping to find? Uh, I mean, you could have, you could have carried this you could have uh, carried out this research anywhere in the world. I mean, you could have gone to Silicon Valley and discovered, I suppose, gr granted, that was a more well-researched well space. But, I mean, wh what were you, why Africa? Why, what had you seen that made you think, hey, and why specifically software and tech? Well, so, you know, I think the timing is quite unique because, you know, basically you're talking about a continent of over a billion people who, you know, fair to say that within one generation is is connected to, you know, mobile and Internet. Um, and it's such a, a significant population being connected in such a short space of time. Uh, you know, it's it's radical, uh, just a radical moment in, in history. Uh, and, and ethnography is is something I discovered is is really interesting because you're not actually looking for anything. You're just observing um, you're just trying to capture uh, basically what's happening at a certain um, you know point in in history, um, but certainly you know for me personally, I was I was really eager to to understand you know are they are you know sort of taking into account how many young people there are um, you know living in these in different African cities, just really trying to understand you know of of this group of people. You know, are there entrepreneurs out there, and what are they working on, and and what are they building, and and how exciting is this going to be? And you know, coming back from Uganda, I couldn't have been more sort of convinced that this thing was just, you know, this was it. This was going to be huge. This was seriously important. 
So I don't know how intentional it's been for you to, uh, to for you personally, and indeed, uh, VC for Africa as, as an organization to position as uh, essentially the, the the face of the, the venture capital scene on the continent to the rest of the world. Um, I, I don't know if that's been an intentional part of you guys branding yourself or you branding yourself as such but i suppose you've probably been asked this before what what makes you the right person to to represent that scene yeah i mean you know ben white from new mexico it's uh it's it's random for sure um but you know there was um there was a specific moment a specific opportunity actually where the dutch development bank uh, the head of the private Ac- uh, equity Africa desk uh, asked me if I would travel uh, with him to the AFCA, to the African Venture Capital Association meeting in uh, in Dakar, Senegal, uh, and and I went with him, and you know he really asked me to kind of study what was you know what was there, and and what you could see is that you know you had a a, a microfinance industry, and you had a private equity industry, but there was no venture capital, and so. You know, the first step was to say, okay, you know, should there be a venture capital industry? Should there be a venture capital network and community and infrastructure and ecosystem? Uh, And so you call yourself VC for Africa. Um, You know, I think part of that was also because, you know, if we were bringing together uh, a group of individuals who were, you know, pooling, you know, their network, their uh, expertise and their capital, um, we needed to make that available. And so... You know, by also calling yourself VC for Africa, you make yourself easier for entrepreneurs to find. Uh, you know, they go online and they're looking for money. They're looking for investors. They're looking for support. And so they find uh, VC for Africa. Is this specific to the tech and innovation space or was the gap you saw um, uh, in terms of uh, a dose of, of venture capital in general for all kinds of projects? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in general, right? Um, it's for all kinds of projects. Uh, it goes way beyond tech. Uh, but I think if you, you know, understanding investors, it's, it's also about, you know, the, the potential for something to scale. And so most of it is, is technology related because technology is just such a great scaler. Uh, but it doesn't have to be technology, um, you know, uh, specifically. It can also be uh, a disruptive business model. It can be a you know a new way of delivering healthcare or or education, and technology will or or will not you know have a, a role to play in in making that model successful. Cool. So I believe you were recently back from the Africa Tech Conference in Paris. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Uh, how did that go? Uh, you know, just drop some highlights for us. Yeah. I mean, we've we've I've been seeing this a lot lately. Um, you know, I was at the maybe sort of the first Africa conference that was hosted in Silicon Valley. Um, we had an event at the beginning of the year in London. We have another one next week uh, in London, the African uh, Technology Business Week. Um, we had Afrobytes last week in, in Paris. And, you know, I think what's, what's happening is that, you know, the, the, the diaspora, the, the, the populations, you know, living outside of the continent are really starting to organize, uh, come together you know, at these events. Are these uh, organized by the diaspora? Because I was going to ask you, you know, next uh, to explain to people, you know, here on the continent, why an African conference is happening in Paris or in London or Silicon Valley. Right, right. But so all four of the events I just listed were, are organized by, uh, by diaspora. I see, I see. And, And I think, 
you know, for them, it, they're really just trying to put Africa on the map, put Africa on the agenda. Um, you know, of course, it's not just one country, but I mean, just, you know, also the countries that they're coming from, the sectors that they represent, but really just trying to, you know, create visibility and, you know, get people involved and help them understand, you know, what's happening, um, you know, what are the trends, uh, you know, who, who's involved, what organizations are active in the space, um, and, and then really trying to, you know, also get people, um, you know, to, to be more active. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a really positive development. And so what do you find to be the most common misconception about uh, being a VC on the continent or, or uh, in, in audiences abroad? So in Europe and the States, in terms of people's mindset uh, about what's going on on the continent and how to get involved, what, what do you find is, is commonly misperceived? Um, you know, I think generally it's just a, a, a lack of information. People just don't have uh, the information to really be able to, to make informed decisions. Uh, and, and so these events are, you know, also great opportunities to just engage with people and, and really, you know, give them a chance to ask questions. Uh, because there's a lot of, you know, evidence and infrastructure and network and, you know, there's all kinds of resources in place. Um, but if they're not, if, you know, if individuals outside of the continent are not able to find um, these resources, then it, it's very difficult for them or it's a big jump for them, um, you know, to become involved. Is that to say that there's an eagerness to be involved, but just uh, not enough information? I mean, what specifically would you say is like, oh, I didn't know that about Africa. Now that I know, I'm going to bring in $100 million or I'm going to pour in, I'm going to put my back into this or What's usually game uh, a turnkey in that regard? I mean, to that extent, the people that are engaging in these events have an interest already, um, you know, so they pre-qualify themselves. Like, I don't think we spend a lot of time talking to people who, you know, are not already um, actively engaged in, in some way or another. Uh, for example, you know, VC for Africa connects a thousand investors through its investor network. Um, we, we do surveys with them and, and ask them questions all the time. And, you know, last year was like 84%. This uh, past year was 86% um, have already invested in an African venture. So these aren't people that are necessarily sitting on the sidelines. They're, you know, they're much more um, engaged and, and involved uh, than that. Um, but I think, you know, there you just have um, questions about, you know, how to do things better, how to do them more effectively, um, and, and then certainly from an investor perspective, depending on what kind of investor you are, what kind of capital you're representing, um, you know, there's all kinds of questions. I suppose the, the reason I'd ask is because as a journalist that, uh, you know, presents the African Tech Roundup, uh, I'd be interested to know what sort of information we are or aren't passing along to, to make those kind of decisions that much easier? Yeah, I mean, I do think that people are, um, you know, they're looking for uh, great companies um, that are, you know, not ideas, but that are, are well, you know, sort of established up and running and, and are really, you know, posting promising, uh, promising numbers. Um, but they're also looking for partners. They're also looking for people that they can work with. So I think, you know, in, in trying to make things, um, you know, happen in, in some of these different markets, it's, it's very difficult to do it if you're, if you're sort of, you know, flying solo. Uh, you need to have, you know, the right connections and the right people involved uh, for something to make sense. And so that's where, 
you know, there's a, a huge amount of work in, in terms of just trying to uh, help people expand their professional networks, you know, build their, their Rolodex of, of trusted contacts. Uh, because, you know, the more we do that, the easier it is to, to start connecting the dots on, on opportunities. And so I've spoken to, you know, several VCs who, and one of the prevailing themes seems to be um, Africa has a lot of great ideas, um, but not that many uh, investable concepts. Is that, do you think that's an accurate assessment of the, the startup scene on the continent? Lots of well, promise, but one, perhaps yeah, not I mean, at the right the scale. Yeah, one of the challenges for sure is, um, you know, depending on who the investor is again, but I mean, you know, if you're running a VC fund, there's a certain economics to it um, that only allows you to, you know, invest in deals that are already at a, a certain size. Uh, and, and so that's where, I, I, you know, the challenge is, is, is that, you know, the, there are not enough deals um, at the size that, it, that, you know, established investors like to invest. Uh, and so the question there is, you know, how do we grow the pipeline? How do we, you know, build the base of, of ventures, but then work with that, you know, you know pool of talent to, to help them scale those enterprises, um, you know, that, that is really needed to, to have a pipeline in place for, you know, a, a thriving, um, you know, venture capital industry. And, and there as well, I think a lot of our work, um, you know, maybe in the last two to three years has actually been focused on, you know, trying to build up uh, the angel investing scene uh, across the continent. Really this idea that, you know, there, the continent has the money. There, you know, it's not a, a lack of, of resources per se. Um, it, it, you know, it's more a question of how do we get the resources that, you know, to some, in some extent might be, um, you know, stored in a Swiss bank account. How do we get that money to actually be invested locally? Uh, so really engaging with business professionals, uh, you know, who who are also, I think, increasingly realizing that there are great opportunities um, in, in their own market and, and are starting to think about, you know, how can I, you know, leverage and, and use sort of the experiences and, and the expertise and, and the network that I've built up over my professional career uh, with maybe a little bit of the extra money that I have, you know, how can I invest that into this next generation? And, and that's a really, I think, exciting development because, you know, as these business professionals become involved with these, with these young companies, um, they're really, you know, the potential is that they really do a lot to help professionalize the businesses. You know, they say, I want to see your, your quarterly reports. I want to see your financials. I want to see your documentation. Um, you know, how are you thinking about this? How are you thinking about that? I want to see improvements in your, in your human resources. Uh, and so what, what happens is that these companies, um, you know, they become more serious and, and, and uh, better managed and, and better structured, um, you know, in a, in a short period of time. And, and that starts to, you know, create a, a, an investable opportunity for more sophisticated capital or more structured uh, capital. Do you think startup founders on the continent are looking too far for, for investment or for the kind of support they might need to, to get themselves to that level of invest, well, investability? I mean, I, I would say that there are no shortcuts. And, and a lot of times, you know, people are trying to jump steps. Um, I, it's not wrong, right? I mean, there's, there's, a, um, pe there's not a lot of patience. Uh, and, and maybe that patience uh, comes from a realization that we don't have a lot of time. 
Um, and but at the same time, you know, it is it is done in a way that you you are not able to to skip steps. Uh, and, and so this is really a relational business. This is really, you know, things are done on referral. Things are done through, you know, trusted uh, intermediaries and, and contacts. Uh, and it takes time to to build that network. So when entrepreneurs, you know, approach me, like if I get a, a founder who approaches me and says, you know, I have one month to raise uh, 600,000 uh, U.S., um, you know, I, I cringe a bit and say, yeah, it, you know, I understand that you would really like to have that that kind of investment. Um, but it, you know, it doesn't just happen like that. Uh, you know, entrepreneurs have to really start locally. They have to start with, you know, the, the people sitting next to them. Um, they have to build up uh, their network of, of colleagues and, and, you know, sort of professionals that they have in their network. And, and they have to leverage that. They have to use that network. Um, you know, to, to, to build sort of step by step, um, you know, finding uh, opportunities and introductions and, and in that way, um, you know, identify uh, uh, sort of the resources that they need to grow their businesses. We're taking a quick break to remind you of Freshbook's pretty awesome offer to you, a listener of the African Tech Conversations podcast. They're offering a 30 day free trial to let you try out their service. Now, if you'd like to get organized, save time invoicing, and get paid faster, click through to gofreshbooks.com forward slash tech conversations and put them to the test. And so there's popular sentiment on the, you know, across the continent that um, that holds that uh, there are a number of people who might be interested in investing in the continent startup scene but that those people or individuals or organizations might not be terribly invested in the long-term well-being of the continent at large and therefore just here to profiteer and not really care about, you know, the people. What would you say to people who, you know, who, who, who hold that view? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think it's, um, you know, it's unrealistic to expect uh, otherwise, uh, to some extent, you know, the, the idea that, um, you know, the capital or the solutions exist outside of the continent, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't really believe that. Um, I, I think it's actually uh, locally, um, you know, it starts local. Uh, and, and also, I don't think that really any um, resources or capital outside of the continent can, can really engage um, until, uh, you know, things are being structured locally. Um, that's really the, the channel that allows uh, this capital to come into the market. Uh, so Is that you throwing the ball back in, 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 in those people's court going, listen, um, guys get organized. Don't expect outsiders to do what you ought to be doing for yourselves. Is that, is that <laughs> pretty much what you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that, um, you know, there are foreign investors that are you know, going to sort of come in and, and save the day. Uh, and, and investors are, you know, they, they have a, a business model, so they're, they're trying to make money. Um, and, and that's what, what drives them and that's what drives their, their decision making. So they're not interested, you know, necessarily in, you know, financing the development of an ecosystem or helping to build up infrastructure. I mean, certainly their, their involvement can have a positive spinoff. Um, but it's not their job to, you know, organize 
the community and the network and, you know, to really invest in the training and the learning and, you know, sort of all these other things that are needed. And, and that's only going to be done when people within the community stand up and, and really take the initiative um, to do that for themselves. I take it um, the African Business Angels Network would be an example of that happening? I think it's, um, you know, it's, a, it's an exciting initiative um, where you have angel networks that are uh, emerging, you know, in, in Egypt, in Kenya, South Africa, uh, Nigeria, Cameroon, Ghana, Ivory Coast, uh, you know, and, and, and a number of other countries. Uh, and then having these networks actually connect to one another, um, you know, through uh, an intermediary like ABAN, the African Business Angels Network. Uh, where they can really start to exchange uh, knowledge and experiences and, and models, but they can also start to, um, you know, syndicate and, and federate deals across networks. Uh, and they can also uh, interlink uh, with, you know, established networks in the Middle East and, and Europe and, and the U.S. Um, so I really think this is, you know, where we start to, to build, you know, very important connections um, that definitely help uh, in terms of better linking, you know, sort of uh, opportunities with, uh, you know, and this, the supply and the demand. And so what's the business model at VC for Africa? I imagine you guys aren't in this for your health. Um, well, so it started as a, as a volunteer-led initiative. <clears throat> we actually had uh, a group of volunteers that were running VC for Africa from 2007 until 2010. Uh, but then it was around that period that, you know, we had so many members who were trying to do things. Uh, it was just very difficult to do it, um, you know, with, with a volunteer-led effort. Uh, and so at that point, um, you know, my co-founder, Bill Zimmerman, and I decided to build uh, VC for A. It was vcforafrica.biz. So it was uh, basically our second generational platform. Uh, we built and we launched that. And then we, you know, we, we kind of came to this realization that, you know, okay, there's this network, there's a platform, um, whether we like it or not, we actually need to, uh, you know, put together an, an organization, uh, you know, to, to, to run this professionally. Uh, and so we did that in, in 2010. Um, but, it, you know, VC for Africa now has uh, 30,000 members in, in 159 countries. Uh, there's uh, 5,000 uh, early stage businesses. So between, you know, anywhere between, uh, say, they need 10,000 or, or 2 million. Um, so there's about 5,000 enterprises, you know, active in, in 46 African uh, markets. And then there's about 1,000 investors that are um, part of the VC for Africa uh, investor network. Um, and we have uh, basically two business models. So everything on VC for Africa is, is essentially, we operate with a freemium. So, so everything is free in the first degree. Uh, but investors, they can pay for a, a subscription, a monthly subscription service, uh, our premium account where they can uh, set up a, you know, a custom dashboard and, and set up alerts and, and really drill down into, into the things that you know, match their investing criteria. Uh, and then at, at the same time, VC for Africa is asked to support a lot of programs where, you know, we'll be approached by an organization that says, hey, um, you know, can we maybe work with VC for Africa in, in establishing this new initiative? Um, would you be able to, you know, help, 
you know, rally some of the members uh, around this event or, or around this, uh, this acceleration program that we're running. Uh, and so then VC for Africa is, is contracted for, for support. So in, in those two ways, um, you know, we're working to uh, build VC for Africa as a, as a sustainable initiative so that there's, a, you know, really a world-class, robust uh, platform and, and resource for, for starting entrepreneurs. Right. And uh, you guys recently put out a report that uh, suggests that there seems to be a growing appetite for investment in early stage startups in Africa. Tell me a bit about that report. I mean, our thesis and, and sort of our core belief is that, you know, entrepreneurs are, are rock stars. Um, you know, these are, are really talented uh, individuals who, you know, look at, at our world, uh, you know, the larger world, and, and they see problems um, and and they see opportunities for for solutions and you know these these individuals are smart enough that they could probably get a job tomorrow working anywhere um, doing anything but they really choose this path of of entrepreneurship um, and and to some extent you know they're 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 the engine of development they you know they have the potential to create not only meaningful um, you know uh, services and and tools. Uh, uh, but they're also building companies that, you know, uh, need to employ people. Um, you know, they, they're uh, in, investing in things like healthcare and pension plans. They're paying taxes that governments need to invest in roads and infrastructure and, and all of these things. And, and that's not just, you know, one of our beliefs. That's, that's something that increasingly, you know, I think um, governments all over the world, multinationals, NGOs, uh, you know, really all kinds of stakeholders are, are really asking as a question, you know, is, is entrepreneurship, um, you know, is there a positive contribution? What is that contribution? What does it look like? Uh, and is this entrepreneurship thing, is this actually worth investing in? Uh, so, you know, having a, a community of entrepreneurs and mentors and investors, it's um, you know, a very natural step for us to reach out to them and say, look, if, if you share some of your, um, you know, your, your progress and, and performance data uh, with us, we can help benchmark, we can help you benchmark, um, you know, uh, against your peers. Uh, but at the same time, you know, as we aggregate this information, we can really start to say something meaningful about trends that are happening across, you know, markets or sectors, um, and, and, and start to say something about what's happening, uh, you know, across the African startup space. Because I think, if anything, there's, there's still, you know, really a, a lack of, of tangible data and information uh, to back up this story. So, you know, we started uh, our own research uh, activities in 2013. Um, we just completed uh, the 2015 research, so two years later. Uh, we had 257 startups uh, and uh, seven, 71 investors basically benchmark themselves, um, you know, in, in the report. Right. And so uh, what were some of the key, what would you say are some of the headline uh, discoveries you, you made in, 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 in polling these individuals? So in, in the research that we're doing, we're, we're basically looking at, um, you know, sort of key developments across uh, you know, five different, uh, five different themes. So, you know, job creation, um, venture performance, uh, investments. So really looking at, at the capital component, uh, investor perspectives, uh, and investor activity, uh, and then a number of, of ecosystem influencing factors. 
uh, and across all sort of five uh, five areas, we're we're seeing you know year on year progress um, that that's actually quite uh, remarkable. So you know here we we see uh, for example in two thousand and thirteen. Uh, that the average team size for the ventures that were being benchmarked was uh, 3.7, where in uh, 2015, this had increased 56% to 8.9 uh, jobs per venture. So um, this is saying you know, that the, the size of the teams, the size of the ventures um, is growing on average uh, by quite a significant rate. Uh, and if you aggregate that across the data set, and of course, you know, this is only a sample of, of what's happening within the larger startup ecosystem. Uh, but we're talking about thousands and thousands of, of, you know, new employment opportunities that have been created by these by these companies. Um, we also see that, you know, in terms of the venture performance, uh, the companies are also doing, you know, a lot better. Uh, more than 50% are, are generating uh, revenue, 40% uh, have you know, started to uh, break even uh, or are making a, a profit. Uh, last year that was, uh, was 32%. So again, we're seeing uh, an improvement. Um, and, and that, you know, it's very natural then to, to also see uh, increased investments. So where, you know, the average uh, round was 130,000 in 2013, uh, it's now 326,000. Uh, so the amount of capital that is being invested, um, the size of the rounds that are being raised uh, are, are also increasing, um, you know, in, in quite a healthy way. Uh, so I think really, you know, if you look at across sort of the, the spectrum of, you know, parameters or the KPIs that we're looking at, um, you know, we can say that the companies, not only is the volume of the companies uh, growing, but the quality of the companies is really improving over time. Uh, you're seeing that, you know, financially they're performing, uh, their performance is, is better. Um, they're creating uh, new employment opportunities. They're growing their teams and they're securing uh, you know, greater amounts of capital uh, as a result. Would you say that uh, good ideas or promising startups, um, you know, at the right level of investability are finding it easier to, to access the kind of uh, uh, growth funding they need? For uh, a founder, it's never easy to, to raise capital for their business. Uh, it's, it's always a, a very hard thing to do. But if you look at the number of investors that are active in the space, the amount of capital um, that is being made available to the space, um, it, it's certainly uh, certainly dramatic improvements from you know two three years ago. And so, what advice would you give to uh, startup founders on the continent in terms of being part of the wave you've you've described? Um, I know you've you know touched on it. Uh, you touched on some of the you know some ideas earlier on, but what what are some of the the, the key things that um, a startup founder on the continent right now ought to know about preparing themselves for for investment? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there's different types of capital, um, and you know, each each type of capital is um, specific to to a type of business. So, you know, for founders out there, it's also really understanding, you know, what's the business that I'm that I'm building. Uh, and in how far um, you know is is the enterprise uh, supposed to scale, uh, and in how far do I actually require support uh, in order to do that? 
um, you know, walking through that that analysis is then also saying, okay, what kind of money is then needed, um, you know, for me to to achieve these uh, these goals. Um, there, it's really important to you know take into account that not all investors are the same, uh, and and certainly within the VC space, you know the investors are are putting money into businesses with a very very specific, well defined thesis, uh, and and so you know for founders, it's really important to to study the investors, um, to really try and understand what is actually you know um, what are their deciding factors. Uh, and and to really you know I think already before ever you know spending the time in in trying to pitch an investor, uh, answering the question you know is this actually even relevant? Uh, is there is there even a likelihood of of a connection being made? Um, and if so, what is that? And and there I think also you know doing due diligence uh, not only on on the fund and and on the investors, but you know maybe also talking to founders that are already in their portfolio really trying to understand, you know, is it money that they're bringing to the table? Are they bringing other things to the table? What is that? Um, how is it to work with them? What does that relationship look like? Uh, so there's, there's just a lot more, um, you know, that founders can do in terms of preparing themselves for, for the fundraising process. And does VC for Africa participate in investments with, with uh, some of the people they bring to, to the platform? Uh, when you guys see something promising, do you, you know, do you put your chips into the game? So we we have something called a, a, a signal ranking. Uh, basically, ventures that are listed on VC for Africa, we we have an algorithm that is aggregating uh, a lot of different data points um, that go into determining a venture's uh, signal, uh, and that certainly um, you know uh, determines their positions within the platform uh, and across our our communication channels. So we as, as the VC for Africa organization don't say this is a company you should invest in. Um, we are not involved in making personal introductions and we, we are not interested in actually being part of the deal. Um, but we are constantly working to um, you know, help good companies find good partners uh, and then surround those individuals with all of the resources they need to actually you know, make a, a good deal happen. Have you had uh, situations where people came back and said, hey, you said this guy had a great signal. Or this company had an amazing signal and we invested and it flopped. We hate you. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, again, we, do, we don't actually give that kind of advice. Um, so we don't have people who, who tell us, you know, oh, you, you messed me up uh, on, on that. Um, but, you know, I think for entrepreneurs and investors who are operating in, in this kind of space, you know, everyone knows that it's a, a very difficult thing to do. Um, many times things can go wrong and, and you really have to be careful about the decisions that you make and, and also the expectations that you're setting for yourself. Uh, but so it's, it's a constant, uh, you know, it's a constant battle to, you know, constantly um, work with each other to, to stay realistic and to stay informed. And in your personal capacity, do you invest in, in the odd startup um, or do you s sit on some boards? Do you take on uh, mentees, anything like that? Um, so uh, Bill and I run a, a, a seed fund called Sanaga Ventures uh, and we invest in a, in a personal capacity. Um, really there, I mean, it's, it's really stuff that, that we, you know, feel is, is, uh, really exciting and important, but is not necessarily going to be picked up, 
uh, by uh, by the capital that's currently available in the market. So we're really looking for things uh, on the fringe, um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's very exciting to to constantly be you know engaging with uh, with founders and and with teams and and trying to understand uh, you know what they're building and and how we can help them grow their companies. And what's your process around that? Is it organic? Do you guys have a uh, uh, system for determining what's good? Do you guys go with your gut? Um, do you stick to things you like or are personally interested in, or is anything for your game? Um, the last thing we did was uh, a syndication through the Lagos Angels Network. So we're doing these deal days. They just opened the second deal day. Uh, I think this is a really exciting way for people to, uh, you know, become involved in this space and and really. You know, I think combine uh, networks and, and expertise in, in trying to, you know, bring more startup founders uh, into the fold. So it's not specific to any one area, like say fintech, health tech, or something like that. No, it's not. It's a, it's, it's a, we're agnostic, and, and we're really it's it's much more of you know what what is, you know feels. Um, it's basically driven on on personal interest, right? So things that you know really grab us and and that we think are are a good fit with uh, you know the things that we're able to do and the things that we like building and and that really you know make sense for for us. And I guess I'm gauging your your confidence in your nose to 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 sense a good deal uh, coming to the table. I mean, do you take other people's money? Is this is this fund open to other people or or is this just your your personal funds? Um, it's uh, personal funds, but if you, um, you know, with the work that we're doing around syndication, um, you know, I definitely think in the next two to three years, we're going to be seeing, you know, more um, mechanisms and channels for pooling capital. I think this is really, uh, you know, a pretty powerful way uh, of getting more money into the early stage venturing market. Uh, so that's that's definitely something uh, you know that we support with the Lagos Angels, uh, but then I think we'll we'll also be um, you know trying to to see that uh, expand into other markets on the continent. You know, there's this huge debate, uh, ongoing debate about what a startup is in terms of definition. Is it you know in terms of size, scalability, all that? Um, you know, p- people like to to banter back and forth. There's there's also a similar debate in terms of determining what qualifies someone to be a VC. So in your context, in the context of your organization, in the work you do, you know, as an angel investor, etc. At what level can I can I safely, uh, you know, safely don the title of VC versus say angel uh, angel investor? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the the sort of the critical difference is that you know a VC is investing professionally. Um, and is to some extent hired as a manager of someone else's money. Uh, So, you know, they they certainly they're supposed to have, you know, some of their own capital uh, in the model um, that they're managing. But, you know, in most cases, they're they're really the bulk of the money is actually coming from somebody else. Uh, And and so that's, you know, that's a really important thing to understand. And then, you know, in terms of the size of the fund that they're managing, that will have all kinds of implications for the kinds of deals um, that they're looking for and that they're investing in. Um, this is very different than you know the sort of the angel space where it's really individuals who are who are acting independently. Um, you know, to some extent, a lot of angels are not necessarily you know textbook rich. Uh, they're they're just you know business professionals, people who already have you know established uh, a career. Uh, are really, you know, 
looking for ways to to kind of give back to the next generation. Um, they're doing it because they think it's important, but also because it's fun and they enjoy it. Um, they're not necessarily making decisions purely for financial reasons. They're also doing it, you know, for you know maybe personal affinity or you know personal motivations. Um, and, you know, and so certainly it's it's this we call it mentor capital. It's this combination of you know trying to be involved and and help founders build meaningful companies, um, but then also providing uh, you know that sort of early early stage capital support that you know no sort of sophisticated or institutional investor would would be able to provide. Um, so it's not one or the other. It's you know I think. Uh, angels come at an earlier point in the venture life cycle, uh, and and certainly there's this bridge to build between the angel and the, and the VC markets. Right. Okay, then. So it's all downhill from here. All right. Yeah. So um, being uh, being well traveled, I thought we might uh, end off with some uh, travel related questions. Okay. In terms of all the places you've traveled around the world, where would you say, uh, which country would you say had the best food? It would be nice if it was an African country. Hint, hint, <laughs> nudge, nudge. <laughs> no, 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 no pressure. Seriously, I, I though. certainly, I certainly, um, uh, I'm a, a stickler for, for Ekwong, in, uh, which I can get with, uh, with my friends at, at Active Spaces in, in Cameroon. Uh, I think the first time I had Ekwong, my uh, my mind was blown, and uh, it's a phenomenal dish. Thank you, thank you so much for keeping it on the continent, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I also miss my uh, my green chilies from uh, from northern New Mexico. We grow ah. these uh, unbelievable green and and red chilies that are. Uh, that are just absolutely fantastic and and they put it into everything i mean you eat it with eggs you you put it in your chocolate um you know you have it uh for dinner uh it's just you know it's basically a, a staple food that you have uh, with every meal i suppose that would be the, the the mexican influence no doubt absolutely and so do you fly what do you fly do you fly coach business class first class i always fly coach oh really why is that um is that out of necessity or is, is that uh, company regulation, organization, organization rules? I think it's also just, uh, just me. I mean, I don't really, I don't think I would feel comfortable sitting at the front of the plane and having all these people walk past you, you know, <laughs> glaring at you with their eyes. Uh, it's, it's not me. I, I don't like to really, I, those kinds of situations don't make me feel very comfortable. Uh, I, I'd rather just, you know, be a, a normal guy living a normal life you, d you don't want to be staring class issues in the face every time you fly <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i think it's also the idea that you know there's we actually only need so much in life um you know there's this sort of there's this desire to to have more and and amass more and you know uh at a certain point it's it, it's really not adding anything uh and and so i think that's just also a personal you know belief that you know if we have the basic things um that are important and we focus on that um uh, you know that's that that should bring us uh, the happiness that that we seek uh it's interesting the the one compelling reason or relatively or mildly compelling reason someone once shared with me someone who typically flies uh business class and sometimes first class shared with me is the the networking uh potential of of flying those those classes um 
to say nothing of the quality of individual you might meet there, I think sometimes it might have you swimming in a certain pond uh, with people who, you know, might get things done who might not otherwise be in, in, in coach. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it depends on who you're looking to meet. I mean, sometimes I like uh, just, you know, talking to uh, the person next to me and, and finding out, you know, where they're from and what motivates them and what they're true. doing. And true, uh, true. You it's can really, thing, you, I think, yeah. yeah, I mean, you can, you can be, uh, you can really be inspired by, by anyone. Cool. So what's the most unbelievable, single most unbelievable uh, natural scene in nature that you've experienced in road life? Mine would be the Victoria Falls, for example. Monsieur Tunia, actually, more, more more accurately named. Yeah, so I mean that just blows me away every time I, I see it. In fact, driving away blows blows me away even more because it's just the thought of looking back, seeing all that steam rising, and thinking it's going to carry on without me. You know, it's <laughs> my back to it, looking straight at it. Whether I walk away, whether I fly to to the ends of the earth, that thing's just going to carry on. It just blows my mind. So, like, what what have you? Where would you have seen something that uh, took your breath away to that extent, maybe? Uh, I, I, there's so many places. It's so hard to choose one. Um, and it doesn't have to be Africa as well. I mean, if, even if it's in New Mexico, we won't judge you too harshly, <laughs> too harshly. <laughs> it's it's yeah. so hard. There's so many places. Well, do you listen to podcasts on a regular basis? Yeah, absolutely. I think you guys are, are doing something really cool. Um, well, thank you. you your show kind. is, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it's really important to have a platform like this, uh, you know, really to, to talk to people and, and try and understand a little bit more about where they're coming from and, and what's motivating them and, and how that kind of comes into the space. And uh, it, it's great that you guys have uh, have put together such a such a nice show. Well, thank you. And, and I mean, what else are you listening to? Are you uh, do you typically only listen to podcasts, uh, you know, for information purposes, or do you relax to them? Or uh, pretty much only for informational purposes. And uh, yours is the only one that I follow at the moment on a, on a more regular basis. Oh, okay. That's that's really kind and very very nice to know. Very affirming. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so now we have to get you to come to Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, attend one of these African conferences. Um, look, I mean, we've we've been thinking about it. It's just, I mean, listening to you explain the benefits, or you know, and and particularly also knowing, especially for me, knowing that they're they're actually organized by Africans in the diaspora. That that to me makes it a little gives gives me a sense of it's legit and might be worth my time. Mm, absolutely. And well, you know, I think next time we're, I'm in uh, South Africa, I'll definitely come and, and look you guys up. No, you definitely must. If you, if you, if you don't do that, you, we, we will, no, we, we will definitely strike you off our list. <laughs> I do have to tell you one thing. Um, you know, in, in Paris, we, we actually spent quite a bit of time talking about virtual reality. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what kinds of, uh, implications that could have for uh, for the African space. Um, so really, you know, this idea that you know wearing a, a virtual reality headset, you know, you could uh, basically uh, you know follow uh, heart surgeries wherever they might happen in the world, uh, and be able to you know never having done something like that before in your life, you know, sort of give heart surgery to somebody. Um, you know, who, who really needs it. And so there's this idea that, you know, through virtual reality, we're going to be able to follow all of these experiences, but also educational, um, you know, sort of learnings uh, that, that really kind of take, 
you know, the whole sort of knowledge exchange experience to a, to a new level. I know you had your, your doubts about virtual reality. And- yeah, I mean, it's interesting you bring that up because if there's any global, the sort of global trend, popular, uh, popular trend at the moment that I'm not skeptical about, but sort of in the context of Africa and what matters here and what, you know, what's going to actually make a difference. I'm like, virtual reality? Come on. Like, <laughs> you know, let's, let's get an AIDS vaccine or something going, you know. But yeah, I, I, I suppose uh, you're definitely in the education space, in, in, in the health space, there's a lot of potential for that. I'd imagine even uh, surgeries being done remotely. Um, if we got the, uh, if we got our robotics act correct, I mean, you, you could be a, a world-class surgeon sitting in, uh, in in Johannesburg doing a surgery in uh, in Guinea Bissau, right? And you know I think that's just this really interesting you know question that sort of ongoing where we see all of these great technologies and it's really just trying to figure out you know are they going to be useful? Can we actually figure out ways to apply them you know in a way that that makes sense and and has meaning for for the challenges that we're we're trying to address? Well, since we're on the topic, I mean, what 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 area in tech do you think is indeed a gimmick? A gimmick? Yeah, like like just keeping us interested to to, to sort of to sell, you know, to to to, to keep you know blogs going. <laughs> I mean, for a second there, there was quite a bit of hype around the Bitcoin. Uh, I think there's still you know there are a lot of ideas there that are are really exciting, um, potentially very transformative. But I think, you know, it's still early days and, and people are trying to figure out, you know, how exactly can we harness this? Um, you know, the technology is not necessarily the, the issue. It's, it's really also, you know, the adoption and, and, and really, you know, sort of bringing it to a, to a place that it's, it's accepted by sort of the larger market. Uh, you know, maybe in the same way that M-Pesa hasn't worked, you know, everywhere. Um, you know, it's, it's technologies like this as well that, that are tested when, when we actually try to apply them to, uh, to a, real world, uh, a real world scenario. In terms of it be, us being closer to a useful uh, uh, application of, of a technology, I think Bitcoin is far closer than, say, virtual reality in the sense that I think at this point it's really a political science issue where, um, you know, a country like Zimbabwe really given the, the unprecedented currency situation we have in zimbabwe i mean bitcoin would be a perfect perfect right. um it's almost a no-brainer in, in 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 terms of rolling that out and uh, uh you know to alleviate certain problems i just know that it would raise certain issues from a political point of view which maybe as a country we aren't ready to to face up to yet but i imagine that's good and ready to go quite truly whereas vr it's sort of like a few years away and i mean the political will to actually apply oculus rift to medical science in the way you described i mean what are the odds you know <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah um <clears throat> you know i think the uh you know the the at afrobits they were talking about you know also how the cost of these technologies is dramatically declining over time yeah um, you know so the True. idea now that you know virtual uh, reality headsets are very expensive and would be very difficult for people to have access to you know, if you if you look at just sort of, yeah, the rate of, of innovation, um, you know, that those headsets, uh, you know, at some point are going to be costing, you know, the same or even less than than a smartphone. Uh, yeah. and, and so then it, it becomes, you know, if you have a connection, 
in certain in, in certain use cases, um, it, it becomes a, a viable uh, you know, a viable technology. So it's a, the race is on. We're going to see. I mean, you know, that's what's so exciting about you know being in 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 this space is you just you, things are happening so fast. Um, you know, just the ideas that people have and and how they're you know testing. Um, you know their 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 application. It's uh, you know it's really exciting to see what what's happening and and what's going to be happening in the next uh, in the next five years. That's true, and I suppose I'm inherently an anti hype beast, so um, I, I really shouldn't <laughs> diminish I shouldn't diminish promise of, of 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 you know the promise of innovation because I just can't stand uh, the, the notion that it puts me in the same sort of basket as the Comic Con kids. <laughs> But look, here we go. So this is the last question I have for you. Is there a question I haven't asked that you wished I had? Maybe just um, two things from uh, from the research that we've done recently, which are which are quite interesting. Yeah, uh, we found that um, uh, it's twenty six point nine percent of the founders uh, that we that benchmarked in in the in the latest round are are female founders. Uh, I actually went online to see if that wow. was a lot or or a little. Uh, and uh, looking at Crunchbase, for example, I found that in New York City, um, it's 21%. And in San Francisco, it's 16%. Uh, so that would that would suggest that, you know, the the uh, participation of, of female founders is, is maybe higher than in other parts of the world. Uh, it's also interesting because in the Aban network, um, there are more uh, women investors uh, involved than uh, when we compare ourselves to to counterparts uh, uh, in Europe. Um, so that's certainly something interesting. Uh, another um, insight that we got is uh, 91.7% of the founders have a university degree level of education or, or higher. So, you know, really, it, this is, I think, also... Um, coming back to to our expectations, you know, where people say, "Look, we have, you know, so many young people uh, on the continent. Can we just, you know, turn them all into founders?" Uh, and and I think that's a, that's also a, you know a false expectation because if you look at the individuals who are actually building these companies, the you know it's it's probably fair to say that they're coming from a middle class background, um, that they have some kind of um, you know, initial finances available to them, and they and they have access to to quality education, and and only with some of those ingredients, you know, are they actually in a position uh, to take this kind of risk and and to make this kind of investment in, into building a, you know, a scalable venture. Uh, so if we want to see more startup founders, then we're going to have to you know look at the resources and 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 see you know and how far those are actually available to people. Hmm, that's very interesting. We're doing well, or relatively well. I shouldn't say well because we're not doing well until we're totally representative, but certainly doing well, better than other parts of the world in terms of women. And um, both an interesting, uh, heartening and disheartening at the same, at the same time, the, the idea that education and access uh, are such key, and access to it are such key determinants to, to startup success. Um, I suppose it's disheartening when you consider how how poorly we're doing in terms of just how many Africans are getting the kind of education that will bring them to that level. But uh, interesting nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, plenty of plenty of work uh, still to be done. That's for sure. 
Absolutely. Well, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure chatting with you. Uh, thank you so much, Ben. Oh, I accidentally didn't hit the record button. No, you're joking. I am. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my word. That would have been ridiculous. <laughs> thank you for listening to African Tech Conversations. <laughs>